0: To monitor oxygen is not wrong, but it's important to think about why we're doing it. We're adding the nasal cannula, we're adding the high flow. Yes, a little bit for the oxygen, but really more so for the PEEP to preserve CO2 and preserve ventilation and mitigate the occurrence of a a respiratory failure kind of event.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the Script podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas.
2: And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a pediatric critical care fellow in Washington, D.C.
1: Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pedscript podcast?
2: Absolutely. Pedscript is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We are working with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics.
1: And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or our website at Pedscript.com. We're hoping to add to the continually growing online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics.
2: Yes, and we are here to ask them questions. So, Zach, who are we talking with today?
1: So, today we're excited to have Dr. Bill Borkosh. Dr. Borkosh is an assistant professor of pediatrics and a practicing pediatric critical care physician at the University of Florida. Very interested in medical education. We have a great conversation.
2: Yeah. Today, we are going to talk about the pathophysiology of the respiratory exam, specifically work of breathing. This is one of my favorite things about being a pediatrician, and Bill is really going to go deep into why we see the work of breathing that we see and what it means. He is really fighting against being hyper-focused on the oxygen saturation and wants to think more about ventilation, and I think this episode really changes the conversation.
1: Yes, definitely one of those fundamental topics that we all need to know by heart. This is part two of a two-episode series on this core topic. Let's get right to the conversation. So finishing up with grunting, moving on to accessory muscle use, something we touched on earlier when we talked about retractions, how they're maybe related but not quite the same. So what are you really talking about when you talk about accessory muscle
0: use? So accessory muscle use, you can see in people who are anxious or with increased work of breathing. This is using your entire body, you know, your... um, Uh, your levator scapulae your chest wall your shoulders everything to kind of like move your chest and excurs your chest uh, so that you're moving a higher tidal volume and it also includes using your chest wall to breathe out faster so when you're using your accessory muscles it's not the diaphragm contracting that's causing passive sucking in of tissues it's you actively contracting your muscles to move air with larger tidal volumes and at a faster rate so knowing that you're doing accessory muscles for tidal volume and respiratory rate are you trying to oxygen or ventilate with those? Textbook ventilation here. Text textbook ventilation, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then next would come oh go ahead, Alice. I'm sorry. Oh yeah.
2: Which muscles which muscles specifically are we seeing? What's your what are your favorite accessory muscles to see to visualize on someone with bronchiolitis or something like that?
0: <laughs> my favorite muscles to watch are, um, I, I think it's very interesting. And someone with, like, say, uh, profound asthma, for instance, uh, to look at like their neck muscles. I mean, we talk about like using the uh, external intercostals and stuff. But I find that like having gone through a time in my life where I was able to exercise more frequently than I do now. Um, but uh, I, I used to work out my shoulders and my neck more. But really like watching those people like work their neck muscles, work their lats. It's, it's, it's like, very interesting to watch their entire body kind of like heave with that. That's just physiology at work right before your eyes, you know?
2: Oh, yeah. So we've got normal inspiration. We're using our external intercostals to sort of contract and elevate the ribs, the diaphragm to contract and expand the thoracic cavity. Normal expiration or exhalation. We're using our internal intercostals to pull the ribs down, relaxing our diaphragm, and then we start to add those neck muscles when we see accessory muscle use.
0: That's right. Yeah, I find that there's so many muscles involved, but it is interesting to observe and definitely good to think about, like, which are the major groups that contribute to those big uh, chest wall movements.
1: And one of the subtleties here is we typically think of exhalation being completely passive, but this is an an example of, you know, when you're using accessory muscles, you're trying to force that air out quickly so you can get to the next breath. To maintain your volume this is one
0: of the many reasons why it's very scary to intubate an asthmatic you need that exhale on someone with obstructive lung disease you need to get it out and you're right expiration is active in an awake patient but in uh intubated sedated and especially a muscle relaxed patient it's passive and uh, you can really run into some big issues with auto keeping and cardiopulmonary interactions but that's a little bit beyond the scope of this sure. talk
1: <laughs> yeah stay tuned for a future episode on that hopefully right <laughs> So kind of moving on to our next physical exam finding is tripodding. You know, tripodding is something that I feel like it's talked about quite a lot, but, but I don't often see it. How do you define tripodding?
0: Oh my gosh. The second you see someone tripodding, that in your mind should be like alarm bell. I need to move. But it's thankfully not very subtle. Person's typically like hands on their knees, leaning forward. Usually they're still alert at this point, And we'll get to why mental status is very important. And their chest is excursing rapidly. So when you're tripodding, it's almost like cheating. It's like using the weight of gravity to help your chest wall move forward to excurs out. And if your chest wall moves out, your lungs will follow. And and furthermore, it like kind of pulls your airway kind of forward and, and may open up things a little bit more. So if you think about like the, the straightness of your airway when your like hands are on your knees and you're leaning forward versus the straightness of your airway when you're leaned back and your chin is tucked into your chest... It's much more of a straight shot when you're tripodting. So um, the resistance also goes way down your airway. So I think of tripodting as something that does not just chest wall excursion, but also diminishes airway resistance uh, to move tidal volumes of air more freely.
1: When I think about tripoding, I think about patients with upper airway obstruction. Do you see tripoding in patients with lower respiratory disease or just upper?
0: The times that I remember seeing it, it was actually in really sick asthmatics, asthmatics who I thought were about to completely decompensate. Uh, I mean, maybe it's just what I've been exposed to, but I don't actually see tripoding in upper airway obstruction as much, but it may be because those patients are a bit younger and they don't necessarily have the head or uh, upper uh, muscle control as well to tripod themselves.
2: All right. So we've talked about sort of the positioning, the muscles. What about the literal color of the child? How do you think about cyanosis?
0: So cyanosis and altered mental status are two of the things that like, while it's not directly tied to lung physiology, thinking about things that as an intensivist should like make you get off your seat and move and do something. uh, Tripoding, cyanosis, and altered mental status for me are probably the top three things that will kind of make me change how we're managing the patient. So when you're talking about cyanosis, you have both peripheral and central cyanosis. Those sound like a little bit abstract, but there's a difference. You guys have like a framework for how you think about cyanosis when you're talking about it?
1: Sure, so you know, thinking about peripheral cyanosis, I, my mind goes to perfusion. Thinking about those newborn babies that have acrocyanosis, or that maybe that patient who's coming in with sepsis or in shock, you know, it wouldn't be too surprising to see their distal extremities being a little bit discolored. Uh, but central cyanosis makes me think about those cardiac patients who have that intracardiac shunting. They're, they're,
0: they're deeply cyanotic. Exactly. Yeah. So peripheral cyanosis, as you said, it's like fingers, nose, penis, toes, area around the mouth. These are areas where the blood vessels are super small. And uh, any vasoconstriction, any adrenaline release will cause a limitation of blood flow to those regions. And they'll look blue. But if you were to get a P arterial on someone with peripheral cyanosis, it's going to be fine. And you're going to get a baby with peripheral cyanosis just if they reflux, just from the adrenaline release from that. So it's important to differentiate. But central, as you said, face, mouth, uh, tongue, mucous membranes, those are blue. The Lily book, which is one of my uh, favorite cardiac books, defines central cyanosis as greater than or equal to three grams per deciliter of hemoglobin that's deoxygenated. Uh, but the point is, is that you need, your sat needs to be super low, <laughs> like 70% or less to like really start turning blue, which uh, as people go through their in-critical care rotations, they'll, they'll probably notice that the blue patients have pretty darn low sets.
2: Oh yeah. This is, wait, can, can we talk about the volume of hemoglobin that you need to look blue? Like, is it going to be harder to see in an anemic patient or is that a wives' tale? Well,
0: theoretically, in an anemic patient with one of hemoglobin, if that hemoglobin is 100% oxygenated, that person should not look blue and they should sat 100%. However, if you have a hemoglobin of one, uh, your heart's probably going a mile a minute to just get enough hemoglobin out to the peripheral oxygen. So your adrenaline's probably high. So you would probably have peripheral cyanosis. So that would be a little bit muddied and it'd be hard to measure a peripheral sat just based on that. So I think the Lily book, to be fair, was oriented towards adult cardiac pathology. In a child, I think maybe a reasonable guesstimate would be probably 75% or 70% or lower of SpO2 going to probably uh, make you look pretty darn blue.
1: So we talked about all these different physical exam findings, you know, retractions, tripodding, accessory muscle use, everything's been towards helping ventilation. But cyanosis, I think I can rely on that showing me at least central desaturation, oxygenation issues.
0: Well, you're exactly right. So like cyanosis is all about oxygen. It's not about ventilation hypothetically. However, if I see someone who's cyanotic, whether it's peripheral or central cyanotic, it's going to make me move. Because if someone who has peripheral cyanosis and they're working really hard to breathe, what does that tell you about their state? And like, which way are they heading from a respiratory standpoint? Is this person going to get better and do great? Or are they kind of swirling
2: the toilet? It's the precursor to hemodynamic collapse, right? It's the equivalent of having severely delayed cap refill hypotension.
0: Exactly. Like this is the kind of person who I think is about to go into respiratory failure, respiratory arrest, CO2 accumulation, acidosis, hemodynamic instability. So like, yes, like while central cyanosis would speak to it. The reason we have a SAT uh, probe like on our patients in the PICU is because it's an easy to measure marker that can tell you that your ventilation is kind of going down the tubes here. So if you have someone even with just peripheral cyanosis and not central cyanosis, you know, that they're working really hard and probably should do something about it. Sure,
1: of course anything else to add about cyanosis before we move on?
0: No, I don't think so. I, but it, I think that ties it really nicely into like why altered mental status is actually a respiratory sign and probably the most important one.
1: So yes, yeah, so altered mental status, kind of one of those subtle findings for some of our patients maybe who aren't, you know, neuro completely typical. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell us more about why altered mental
0: status is really concerning. So you talked about everything. You talked about tachypnea retractions flaring, grunting, accessory muscle use, tripoding, and cyanosis, all those things with someone who's talking to you, what do you think the CO2, someone who has all those uh, work of breathing signs uh, and is talking to you is?
2: This is the thing that I'm always impressed by is that if you got a gas, it would probably be fine. They're compensating. They're working so hard to compensate. (laughs) Their CO2 is 45, you know? Yeah, I think it indicates to me that they're compensating adequately.
0: Exactly. As a first-year fellow, it's very common to like want to get a blood gas on everyone who even looks at you the wrong way. But generally, if someone's mentating and talking to you, their CO2 is probably fine. As you said, in people who are um, neurodevelopmentally delayed or whatever, or um, who are intubated and sedated, it can be a little bit harder to tell. Uh, But having a preserved mental status is a really good indication that your carbon dioxide is probably fine. So to me, this is the difference between respiratory insufficiency and respiratory failure. Respiratory insufficiency is like, yeah, you're working hard to breathe, but you're doing it. You know, You're able to do it. Whereas respiratory failure is your work of breathing, no matter how hard you try, is not enough. And all of a sudden your CO2 is through the roof. So if I see someone with increased work of breathing who's obtunded, um, that to me is probably gonna make me intubate them. Uh, regardless, I, I may not even wait for a gas in many of those patients um, because uh, I feel that their CO2 is probably 70 or higher.
1: Sure, and they're probably
0: not protecting their airway very well, so you're getting multiple indications to intubate. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, Uh, but uh, altered mental status to me is like your eyeball way of telling what what someone's CO2 is, (laughs) and I I think that can be really helpful when you're like kind of just uh, managing your unit and trying to decide uh, what to do and how to uh, kind of direct someone's care.
1: A lot of patients in the PICU that aren't aren't neurotypical, altered mental status, it it can be a really difficult exam finding for some of those patients. Do you have any clinical pearls about trying to detect altered mental status in some of those patients, some of our patients like that?
0: You know... um, I feel that the simpler we make our job, the more easily and the more consistently and the more effectively we carry it out. So I um, approach those patients with an abundance of humility. And I will often just ask the parents, hey, is your child usually like that? And they'll be like, no, they are much more playful usually. And I'll be like, okay. And if I'm still not sure, I'll get a blood gas to just confirm my suspicions. Um, but uh, but I find that caregivers are probably your best bet. And I will be very quick uh, to involve the parents in the care and be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. Your child's working really hard to breathe. Can you give? Me, since I don't know your kid as well as you do, what do you think? Is is this like them? To, and they'll often tell you like, yes, she she's opening her eyes it's about her baseline, or or no, she's usually like sitting up. And even talking, and this is completely off. And I can't even count how many times that has helped me direct my care for um, someone in respiratory failure.
2: So when we think broadly, now, Bill, I don't know if I'm if I'm correct here, but I'm I'm hearing that you care a little bit more about hypercarbia than um, than hypoxia. Broadly, how do you sum this yeah. up for those?
0: <laughs> well, let's bring it back home. So we were talking about that kid in the ED, and we all agreed that he had a sat eighty-two, and we're probably going to put a nasal cannula on that kid. So why did we do it? Why did we put a nasal cannula on that kid? You just told me that when someone's working hard to breathe, that all these signs are, you know, to get me your attractions, flaring, grunting, tripod, accessory muscle youths, um, all this stuff is to move CO2 more so than oxygen. So why did we put oxygen on the kid's face?
1: Because the blue number on the screen told us to. It was <laughs> exactly. Below 80, it was below 90%. Wait, okay. But
2: I do, I'm going to push you a little bit here um, because... The way that I used to think about it, understanding that maybe this is less important, is you've got the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve, and you have a certain pressure of oxygen in the blood that's really necessary to keep it bound and delivered. And so I guess my concern in the room is that we're shifting the PA, our PaO2 is maybe going to be inadequate to really get the oxygen bound to hemoglobin and delivered to the body. But maybe that's less important than I always thought.
0: Yeah. So I would, my gut instinct would be to tell you that you use way too many words to, um, to describe a concept. I I usually tell people that you need to be able to explain to someone on the street, you know, but so when you're talking about delivering oxygen to your body, you're talking about perfusion, it's oxygen delivery, right? It's, it's oxygen content and cardiac output, and your body knows what to do. So if the oxygen content in your blood goes down, what does your heart do? It pumps the blood faster. Beats harder increase. beats faster, higher stroke volume, higher heart rate. And it's very good because at doing this, because like we said, we, we know kids with TETs who live their entire lives with SATs of 70, but do 30% of their tissues die? No, of course not. You know, their body would never let that happen. They're, they're able to compensate. They increase their heart rate. They increase their stroke volume. They increase their hemoglobin over time. Uh, so they're able to manage it. Like The SAT is not important except in its relation to CO2, because someone with CO2 is going to have a low SAT, but what are we treating for that? Since we started using pulse oxes on children with lower respiratory tract disease, what do you think has happened to the outcomes of children? Mortality, morbidity, hospital stays? What do you guys think?
1: My initial impression, we use it every day. You sure think it would improve outcomes, but, but
0: maybe not. It seems safer, right? Um, no change in no change in outcomes, um, and this is continuous instead of intermittent, right? So we're not saying never use a pulse ox. But what do you think has happened to the duration of hospital stay in patients since the advent of continuous pulse oximetry for lower respiratory tract disease?
1: I know I'm not discharging a patient with a sat of ninety two home. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> Exactly. On average, it's gone up by one to two days, which is crazy, right? But yeah, you know, you're right. It, like it gives you, Al, as you said, like it, it feels safer. And I would argue in, in the picture, it's not that I would never use a pulse ox. I, I think pulse oxes are extremely useful to like kind of screen for changes in respiratory illness, you know, and the same way a NEARS is useful in kind of screening for changes in hemodynamics and uh, brain and somatic organ perfusion. Uh, but we have to think about the why of it. Um, so it's, not so much that we need to restore oxygenation to uh, maximize perfusion, because that's what oxygen does. It's, it's a way to like quickly identify on a central telemetry unit monitor whether someone's having a ventilatory issue.
1: Hey, well, fantastic. Kind of moving towards the end of today's conversation, you're thinking about broad strokes for take-home points. All these physical exam findings that we think of, tripoding, grunting, retractions, accessory muscle use, tachypnea, We need to take home that those are keys looking into our patient's physiology, that they're having a difficulty with ventilation, maybe not necessarily oxygenation. And we need to keep that in mind when we approach these sick patients. Bill, as we kind of move towards the end, any other take-home points or anything else you want to cover?
0: Yeah, the last thing I'd say is, you know, we did stick a nasal cannula on that kid. But if that kid were a small baby, you may notice that after sticking the nasal cannula in that kid, that respiratory rate went down a little bit. And the reason for that is because all of our respiratory interventions, including nasal cannula on some level, generate PEEP. So nasal cannula, even small babies uh, will generate some PEEP, high flow will generate PEEP, BiPAP and CPAP will generate PEEP, intubation of course generates PEEP, and that will increase your FRC, increase your tidal volume. So to do these things is not wrong, and to monitor oxygen is not wrong, but it's important to think about why we're doing it. We're adding the nasal cannula, we're adding the high flow, yes, a little bit for the oxygen, but really more so for the PEEP to preserve CO2 and preserve ventilation and mitigate the occurrence of a a respiratory failure kind of event. So um, that would be kind of my take take-home point from from all this discussion.
1: Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to be really excited to share this episode with our listeners really soon.
0: Thanks, guys. It was uh, awesome being here. It was fun.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Script. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. Check out pedscript.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thanks again for listening.